0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Coach Cut's Corner. Streaming bright from Michigan's capital city, this podcast is dedicated to helping you better understand the who, the what, and the why of mental performance, personal growth, and Lansing Stars baseball. Coach Cut's Corner brought to you by Iwash. and now here's your host, Stephen Cutter.
1: Welcome back to Coach Cut's Corner. I'm Coach Cutter, and today I'm joined in studio with Coach Modaf and our new hitting coach, all the way from his most recent job in Arizona with Driveline. How are we doing today, Elijah Boyer?
2: I'm doing pretty good. That, right. was, a, that was a nice
1: intro yeah. right there. Coach Mo, how are we doing today? Terrific. Thanks for joining me in studio today, fellas. We're going to cover Elijah's journey here, some hitting philosophies of the stars, backside ground balls, the development of hitters and games starting for the stars in a matter of days. So we'll jump right in. Elijah, you made a long track from Arizona to Michigan earlier, about what, a week, two weeks ago now? Yeah, just about. So happy to have you on board. Appreciate it. Tell our listeners, what was the draw to Lansing?
2: Well... We uh, at Driveline, we see a whole bunch of hitters come through the door, and there was a particular group of hitters, all from Lansing Community College, that came through, and I just, I basically just could feel that the culture at this school was above and beyond, and as I'm learning now, uncommon. So, I uh, I was really interested to see. What was going on here, and I thought I could learn a lot and bring a lot to the table as well. So, it started by the way the players held themselves the minute they walked through the door. Right, and then you just kind of reached out and mm-hmm. went from there. And yeah, how far of a
1: how far of a drive was it? And it was quite an eventful drive for you, was it not?
2: Oh yeah, it was. It was a it was an exciting one. Thirty hours over uh, four days. Stopped to see some family and friends though. So. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I broke it up pretty nice. And you had an incident at a Chili's. Yeah, not a not a lot of fun. Just there. bad food or? <laughs> I don't know, just a lot of energy drinks, not eating well on the road, and okay. then uh, passed out. All right. Well, like I
1: said, we're we're happy to have you here. We're going to talk a, quite a bit about hitting today. Dive into you know not only what you think is important, but what we in general think is important. Not only with you know youth high school college kids and you know you you brought up driveline we kind of started that with you know we had two guys start that hunter lay and blake mccray started that process and they went to driveline in seattle during the winter correct it was during the winter mo or no no that was the so summer. Was summer that was the summer yep yep and they went to driveline in the summer would you really think of that one once they went out there
3: I thought it was uh, cool. I think it was something we'd always talked about. Is that something that's feasible? And especially coming from kind of a background in collegiate summer baseball, looking around and seeing how that's done. And there are some places that do it really well with development and games, but a a lot of them have some blind spots and, and we were able to see that and, and see, maybe this, maybe playing fifty games right after another sixty, after a sixty-game season, isn't the best way for someone to keep getting better and pushing the needle. And you know, drive line was uh, just something that always lined up and met with our kind of thought processes on things, and we learned a lot from them. And it was awesome to have two of our two of our better players head out there for a summer.
1: Right, and that started the process, and Big time. and yet here we are today with Coach Boyer being here. Mm-hmm. So, big hitter question coming. Is there a difference between the softball swing and the baseball swing, Coach Boyer?
2: Not not really. Okay. Why, <laughs> why is that? Well, everything in the swing basically works the same way. They just need to stay a little flatter if they're facing an opponent that has a rise ball, which in right. most cases is not the case. Right. Uh, hitting the ball in the air and doing, doing damage is, is going to play in both softball in baseball
1: right yeah kind of common sense but man if you look on the internet that was fought for a long time I'm I'm not sure how much it's fought anymore but there was a lot of going back and forth about a softball comes in at a at a different angle than what a baseball does and and if you look at the science behind that you know do you, what angle does a baseball come into
2: fastballs usually come in negative six negative seven degrees
1: right. yeah so there's there's not a ton of differences. The the outlier is the rise ball, yeah. And not to get into a softball thing, but the, at at least at the college level, the rise ball is thrown for a a ball, but like seventy some percent of the time. So just don't swing at it, you know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, what's what are some KPIs that when you you know when you were at Drive Line, we're gonna kind of backtrack a little bit and and talk about the prior to Drive Line. But what are some KPIs that? you know, you were looking for as you've got a whole lot of people that you're working with, some, some remote, some on the floor, you know, it's all over the place. What's that like? And how do you differentiate yourself and what drivelines doing versus maybe Johnny's facility and, and Holt?
2: Yeah, there was a lot in my mind about hitting, um, a lot of questions, a lot of wondering what made someone good. And, um, One of the easiest ways I was able to go about helping hitters was to break it into there's three things that makes a good hitter. Um, You could look at it bat speed, bat to ball skills, and then swing decisions. So bat speed, you could almost kind of think of it like power. If you want to think of it in simplistic terms, bat speed is the first one most important in my opinion and with what data shows. (laughs) But uh, the bat-to-ball skills are more like your contact hitters, guys who, you know, get on base all the time, don't strike out a lot, stuff like that. And then swing decisions also kind of applies to, you know, just both. But if you have really bad in one of those three and really good in another, then it's easy to see what to work on for the hitter. Like um, guy walks through the door and he could put the bat on the ball all the time and you know, maybe he's just getting singles, getting lucky, running into some, and getting doubles. It's pretty easy to see that that guy's going to benefit a lot from just gaining bat speed. But and what if you don't have like the technology
1: that we have and some of the bigger programs have? But what if you don't have that technology and you how do you how do you know if your bat speed's good?
2: Can you see the exit velocity? I don't know. If I, you know. What can I see? Right. Uh, yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. It's for the people out there that don't have all the things available to them. It it come becomes a little challenging. Coach Mo, what do you think would be the lowest hanging fruit
1: for you to see bat speed?
3: Bat speed's tough without like a without a uh, a blast sensor. I think We've but. Got the but, ra-
1: but how much does that cost? I mean, it's only a hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah. So that that seems like pretty low hanging fruit Big if time. you were yeah. interested in that. Oh, so,
2: yeah. And you can have the whole team use one sensor. Sure. It wouldn't be ideal, but a hundred dollars and you could you could see your whole team's bat speed.
1: Right. But then understanding that, you know, your bat speed might not be where it should be. Then it's it's that whole knowledge of how do you improve it? Mm-hmm. And can can you improve? Do you coach Mo, You think you're going to improve bat speed by doing it once a week? No. Coach Boyer
2: would move a lot slower. Yeah, (laughs) it'd be closer to no but yeah
1: it'd move slower it'd it'd take a long time so there'd be a cost at that for sure you know we all played junior college ball and we've talked about coach Mose a little bit and you know elijah what, what was your story from high school to college
2: yeah um starting it off in in high school um no one in my family had played baseball really Okay. not even really no like literally nobody played baseball okay. <laughs> nobody uh we didn't have a batting cage in the backyard or nothing um i just ever since a young age it's funny I actually in middle school i didn't like baseball um <laughs> that's when i first started playing it was in middle school um uh, is that because you weren't very good no, that was a little funny story behind it when, okay. when i was on t-ball i I forgot my hat and I took a teammates. I was just a young kid. I I don't know. Took a teammates and then the coach yelled at me. My mom got mad at the coach and then it was like baseball. We just kind of stayed away from it ever since that. But hopped back in in middle school and uh, was almost hitting 80 miles an hour. Had a really good arm. Mom says I would always throw things as a kid and she was always (laughs) impressed by how hard I threw them. So had a good arm. Found out that I was like really good at that sport. And just started falling in love with it from that point on. Basically, mm-hmm. people but, gravitate towards things that they're good at. Mm-hmm. That's that's common. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then you know we moved to Kansas. Didn't know a lot of people there. We moved there because my mom was finishing up becoming a doctor. Kay. And um, Tornado Alley, or no, we were in Overland Park, Kansas. Kay. So there was actually a lot of good baseball. That's where uh, Riley Pine was from. I actually I got to face him in swinging miss three times <laughs> in high school. So that was fun. Um, but yeah, throughout throughout high school, I, I did a few private lessons every once in a while. I I really just had a an old net that my coach, my travel team coach was gonna throw away. And uh we put it in our basement and I I got a used sofa off Facebook and I, I put it behind it so that I wouldn't tear down the garage door. And uh, I couldn't even finish my swing because the the the, the ceiling was so low. Gotcha. And so uh, I would just hit, you know, 100 balls off the tee every morning, and that, that was my method of getting better in high school. And it didn't work too well because I was not good. <laughs> but I, I, I worked pretty hard, so I ended up being all right for myself. Um, didn't really have direction in high school either. No one ever talked to me about the swing, or nor did I even know what – any of these things are we're talking about right now um so that's pretty much high school um I was grateful to have a chance to go play junior college ball at Pratt community college in Pratt Kansas and how how far away from home was that that was about four hours okay yeah so just just far enough to where we're so busy that I couldn't go home every weekend but when I needed to I could um but yeah at that at junior college, we did not have a lot available. Uh, there was like 500 kids at the college um, when I was there and still limited, uh, limited resources to see the kind of things that we're talking about right now. So a lot of it was trying not to strike out and trying to put the ball in play, um, things like that. And so throughout junior college, I'd I'd say I got a lot stronger in the weight room and I started to mature more as a hitter, but still wasn't a ton of direction. And then um, I went to Arkansas Tech after that. So I spent three years total at junior college. Um, My first year there, I redshirted. Then I go to Arkansas Tech, and um, that was the first time that I had actually really went all in on an approach and how, how to swing. And it was very much so, you know, uh, hands across the chest, swing down at the ball type of swing. And a lot of guys can think that and their swing be good. And -hmm. there's, there's nothing wrong with thinking that if it works. Right. Um, but it sure doesn't work for every guy, but that's not what, what's happening. It's also, yeah, it's also not what's really happening most of the time. And so, that was the approach I needed to be a guy who didn't really have a lot of power, um, but not to belabor that whole thought. But there, that was that was my journey. I played three years at Arkansas Tech, loved every second there, and um, we ended up winning a conference championship and having a lot of success my final year. Um, does that
1: year stand out because you won?
2: Yeah, yeah, it does.
1: Yeah. So winning's important?
2: Winning's very important. <laughs> yeah. Everything, right? Yeah, at Juco, I don't think we ever had a winning season. Did that matter at that point though? It felt like it didn't. Yeah.
1: But it probably actually did. Yeah. But it, but at the time it probably didn't. What what was what was the journey after college?
2: After college, um, I was became an electrical engineer. Working at a nuclear power plant, so okay. doing a little Just bit of that. Normal transition <laughs> from baseball. Yep. You know. Yeah, that's. Uh, I always loved math and science, um, which is why driveline was so appealing for me to understand, and um, really started getting curious about the swing, and ran into a coworker at the nuclear plant. Uh, his name was Rich Ellison, and he said his son played baseball, and that he he would die for the game. And he was, he wanted me to hit with him, and I was like, oh, I don't really do lessons. <laughs> and he's like, you you got to see this kid. He he loves to play. <laughs> and from the moment I met Gabe to the to the day I left Arkansas, that that kid that kid put the passion in me for coaching, and I realized that I could be pretty good. At least I think I can be. Mm-hmm. And um, anything's possible. Yeah. <laughs> so gotta be willing to work for it. Uh, so that drove the interest, and then I said you know what, I'm going to go for the best in the business, best in the world. And I tried to go and get an internship with Driveline and started heading to Arizona before I even had the job. And I was just going to wheel it into existence, basically. I, was, I actually told Connor Watson, the lead hitting trainer in AZ, that if uh, I didn't get the job, I would just pay them and hit and pretend like I was coming back to play so I could learn because I just wanted to know what, what really made a swing work right. Uh, luckily I didn't have to do that. Got the internship, learned so much that I had never known. So I learned so much <laughs> and it was, it was one of the best experiences I've had. And, um, that is what got me here. Do
1: you find it challenging to flip between the facility setting to the the team setting because those are really two different worlds when you're mm-hmm. working with people. Has that been challenging at all for you?
2: It's It's been a little challenging, but it's been a, it's been a, f- it's been a fast um, evolution, I guess you could say, because I, I love the team aspect and that's why I didn't want to stay on the private side. I love the team aspect. So it it was a challenge, but I was able to adapt pretty quickly. We've got
1: a lot of technology here and you know, what how do you use something like K motion or K vest How does that apply to what we're trying to do in, in chasing excellence here with the stars?
2: Basically the kinematic sequence for 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 those who don't know what that is, it's starting from the ground up with your your pelvis, torso, lead arm and then hand, which is basically the bat. And you're just trying to see how well a hitter generates speed up the chain uh so k vest is a is a way that we can see that and um it's one of those low hanging fruits Mm -hmm. that you could you could see it immediately if you got a guy who you know he hit 400 in high school with with no home runs or something like that and then you could see that he's just rotating really slow you want to try to get him moving faster in the box and the way you go about that with every hitter is completely different completely different and not every hitter thinks the same. Um, and sometimes I don't even tell them what it is I'm trying to get them to do. I just tell them to do something that will achieve that because, um, I don't like to talk to hitters in all these technical terms because most times it doesn't, doesn't work well. Some guys it does, but there's just a lot of feel when you use technology to not overcomplicate the game. The game is still the game and, Technology, you can just make it better when you have someone who understands it, and I feel like that's the way we use it here. So I enjoy that. Right, Coach Mo,
1: what was what was the two strike approach that you were taught? Say at the junior college level, do you remember?
3: Yeah, mine was uh, spread out as far as you can with your load. Okay, so pretty much, somebody that's vertically challenged, they still wanted me <laughs> to get uh, pretty much chalk line to chalk line. Uh, stand on the chalk so your elbows are hanging over the plate, choke up about an inch and a half, and then just chop down at the ball and just bang it off the ground and
1: run like heck. The, that theory probably works pretty well at the youth levels when the fielding yeah. is a little suspect yeah. and moving that ball in play is you know probably helpful. Yeah. But as as the levels go up and the players get better, it's, you know. That, and, the,
3: and the values of each hitter change where right. – Maybe somebody who is a 6'5 runner, sure, do that, and then he can beat them out. But somebody who is, you know, a seven-seven-five runner and their values and in putting it over the fence, if they get on first, I mean, how many hits or how many... Is it going to take yeah. to get them around? Yeah, yeah. where's the value? And it's
1: really, so. yeah, excellent point. Do you remember, Elijah, Juco, two-strike approach that you were taught? <laughs> I... I don't remember talking about it. It's beautiful because I don't think, in general, that it's talked about very much at the at the younger levels. I think the typically what's said is, "Don't strike out."
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think everyone understood yeah. striking out was
1: bad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But as far as having approaches, and then sometimes you see blanket approaches being taught. Um, where the whole team needs to do certain things. And then, you know, we kind of we're on the other side of that spectrum where we give them a lot of tools for two-strike approaches and then find what works really best for them. And we're not going to – we're going to be aware when we're striking out, you know, too much, but then we're going to continue to work on it and understand that, you know, some guys might strike out a little bit more, but they're also going to be hitting – the ball over the fence occasionally and and I don't I don't believe that th- that needs to be that that parallel that just because you hit home runs you you need to strike out a lot no. because people have proven that you you don't need to do that. But two strike approach is a, it's a pretty hot topic in the baseball community uh when when people talk hitting and you find a lot of it on social media on Twitter and different things. What's your take today after, you know, Being in a facility and
2: training hitters, what's your take on a two-strike approach now? Oh, so much goes through my mind. Um, I love every hitter's process they have, and the great ones usually already have a two-strike approach. Mm -hmm. And I think a little bit of it goes into what Mo said about the value of the hitter. And I also agree with you in the fact that that parallel is not always true to where if they hit home runs, it's okay to strike out. Um, I think the, the best thing I can say about two-strike hitting is it is a mentality that you are not going to get me out. Like I, I am the best, and I can handle whatever you have. And you really have to trust your swing. To, to answer your question directly, I don't have one approach. Um, I've always thought if you're not on time for the fastball, It's going to be hard to catch up to it. So I'd sit fastball and I'd adjust other things and let guys run with that and see how that works. But for me, in two strikes, it's just so much about the mentality of just like, you're you're in a junior college. You're not going to have a perfect strike zone. You're going to have to stick the bat out and foul off his best pitch. You have to keep fighting off their best pitch until you get yours. Right. And
1: also in that realm, there is that physical piece, the, the physical things you need to do. But there's also the psychological piece of it. And and when you start thinking that you strike out too much, you start following that pattern and that pattern starts repeating itself. And and so that self-talk and that process that each player has when they're in the box that leads them to fight or flight is generated from them and in that process, and you, I mean, you guys have probably all been in those situations where you're getting in the box. You can call it a slump. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it just a bad day. But you're getting in the box, and you're not feeling like success is coming. And pretty soon, and you know, two pitches in, you're down 0-2, and you're like, mm-hmm. ah, here we go again. You know, and that yeah. that's that mindset. And and kids, whether they're youth, high school, college pro guys that they struggle with that at times because it's not that they've you know especially the pro guys it's not that they've forgotten how to hit it's it's literally they've forgotten what success looks like and and they're struggling with that stuff well at the lower levels that's well that's one of the biggest things that I believe with, with two strikes is just that mentality of fighting but we get a lot of I'm not necessarily saying at Lansing but but I've seen a lot in the facility and at the at these levels where you get instead of the fight you get the flight and it's because the belief system is just not there. You know, maybe it's for that day or that week or against this certain pitcher or against this certain team or, you know, in mm. this certain weather. I mean, we I think about the things we've heard over the last couple of years <laughs> at the junior college level yep. of excuses of why can't do this right now, you know, mm. and they're, it's it's incredible. We're going to wrap up. I wanted to talk real quick. We've, we're in our fall season right now. we got games coming up. Are you guys fired up to see the boys compete? They've been competing against each other in what we call intra squads for at least a couple of weeks now, but we've got real games coming up or real scrimmages coming up where they'll be wearing uniforms and the other team will be wearing a different color. So you guys fired up about that. Oh
3: yeah. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be fun. It's always kind of a, a different experience. I, think with inner squads they're they're cool and they kind of scratch the itch a little bit but uh i think it's a whole new ball game and you kind of see a different level when when somebody else is wearing a different jersey across from you
2: oh yeah i'm really excited to see them go out there and play mm-hmm. i think uh i think we're gonna be good and i think we yeah, got a process we'll right. and we'll just keep trusting it
1: we'll be all right trust the process thanks fellas <laughs> Coach Cuts Corner is recorded live in the WLNZ studios. Engineering and production assistance are provided by the Delian Lowry. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it and follow us on all the platforms of social media. You can find more about our program at lccstars.com, and donations to our baseball program can be made at the same site. See you next time. Push, push.
0: examining the issues and topics that affect our lives from the local level to the world stage. Listen to the programs of LCC Connect anytime at lccconnect.org.
4: LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes.
5: Vision. Engaged learning and academic success is a priority at Lansing Community College to help students navigate their educational career, LCC has created a proactive approach to learning and providing students with several academic support services. To find out what's available, visit lcc.edu/services.
3: Hi, I'm EJ Williams for American Humane. For thousands of years, dogs have been our best friends in our worst times. Today, We're also learning that our best friends, millions of whom are abandoned each year, are often the best medicine when people are facing obstacles. To help both people and animals, organizations like American Humane have been working to harness the healing power of the human-animal bond, finding animals in need of forever homes and training them as life-saving service and therapy dogs to help our veterans, the elderly, and children overcome the daily obstacles of life. In this way, the rescued can become the rescuers. To find out how you can help give animals and the people they help a new leash on life, (laughs) please visit AmericanHumane.org.
4: Founded in 1957, LCC has addressed the needs of Michigan Industries through education for more than 65 years. Anchored by the downtown campus located in the heart of Lansing, LCC serves mid-Michigan communities with additional campuses in Delta Township, East Lansing, and Livingston County. The college offers more than 200 degrees
2: and certificate programs and is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Those interested in learning more about LCC may visit lcc.edu youbelong. LCC. Connect.
6: Voices. Vibes. Vision.
5: This is Bob Myers from the Historical Society of Michigan with a Michigan History Moment. Nineteenth century America ran on steam. Elijah McCoy of Ypsilanti made it run better. McCoy was the son of an African-American family that had escaped slavery and made its way to Canada via the Underground Railroad. Elijah was born there in 1843 and the family moved to Ypsilanti in 1858. As a boy, Elijah McCoy showed a talent for all things mechanical. An engineering education was almost impossible for an African-American man to obtain in the United States. So his family sent him to Scotland for an apprenticeship. He returned as a licensed mechanical engineer, but getting a job in his field proved impossible. McCoy had to settle for work as a locomotive fireman for the Michigan Central Railroad. Part of his job was oiling the locomotive's bearings. Steam locomotives were picturesque, but they needed an enormous amount of maintenance. They typically required one hour in the roundhouse for every hour they spent pulling rail cars. Every time the train made a stop, McCoy would climb from the cab with his oil can. Oiling all the moving parts took time, and that slowed down the trains. In response to that time consuming work, Elijah McCoy invented a new lubricating device. It used steam from the locomotive's boiler to force oil from a reservoir that carried it to the locomotive's moving parts by way of channels. He patented the device in 1872 and sold it to Ypsilanti businessmen. It quickly found a market in factory engines, railroads, and ships. The railroad finally recognized McCoy's talents and moved him from the locomotive cab to an office. McCoy left the Michigan Central Railroad in 1882 and became a consultant. He went on to patent many more inventions and at the age of 77 opened his own manufacturing company. Some sources credit Elijah McCoy as the inspiration for the phrase the real McCoy, meaning a quality product and not an imitation. The story has it that railroad companies wanted McCoy's lubricators because they were the best and thus demanded the real McCoy. The phrase, however, predates McCoy, but his invention may have helped popularize it. Elijah McCoy died in 1885. In 2001, he was inducted into the U.S. National Inventors Hall of Fame. In 2012, the Patent Service named its Detroit building the Elijah J. McCoy United States Patent and Trademark Office. This Michigan History Moment was brought to you by michiganhistorymagazine.org.
0: This is LCC Connect.
5: Voices.
4: Vibes. Vision. K-12 operations at Lansing Community College has been a proud collaborator of the Lansing Promise Scholarship since 2012. The Lansing Promise Scholarship offers graduating high school seniors who live within the Lansing School District and attend a high school within district boundaries an opportunity to attend LCC. Since its inception, over 1,000 enrolled students have saved over $2 million, earning over 400 degrees and certificates, as well as 30,000 credits at LCC. For more information on the Lansing Promise Scholarship, please visit lcc.edu hope.
7: If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes, their age, the way they speak? Would you notice
8: an eight-year-old girl who's not not excited excited for for summer break because she may not be having lunch
7: again until September? Or a single father of two who works three Three part-time
0: jobs and still can't put enough food on the table?
7: Or maybe a
8: mother who cleans offices at night? Hoping to find meeting leftovers to take home to a hungry family. Or a war veteran who's having a
7: hard, hard time landing, landing a job and getting back on his feet.
8: I am the one in eight Americans who
7: struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to
0: recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council.
4: Lansing Community College's Business and Community Institute provides businesses with customized, synergistic trainings that realize logistical opportunity. Learn more about the future of business today at lcc.edu. LCC. Connect.
8: Voices. Vibes. Vision. This is Melissa Ford-Luckin,
4: Rosalie Petroski,
8: Susan Seraph, and Jess, editors for the Washington Square Review. Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, the Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect the unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our Audio Town Square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from around the world
6: to Lansing. Lansing. Hi, this is Melissa Ford Luckin, editor for the Washington Square Review. I'm here today. C.S. Griffel, one of the authors who has work in the Washington Square Review, and she's come today to talk about her piece and about her writing process and other writerly things. So welcome. Hi. Tell us a little bit about your piece, how you came to write it, and what might be important for a reader to know.
9: The story that you picked up is really based in... um, of things. One is a real experience. Uh, my daughter lost her father. He died by suicide in 2014. And the other was a wriggling ethical question in my mind, and that had to do with what responsibility do we have to stay alive for the people who love us? Uh, I myself have dealt with some of the very thoughts that I dealt with in the story sort of like riding on the edge of of uh, are we in a vast and hopeless universe or is there something out there that kind of brings a, a bit of hope a bit of glimmer of hope into um, into our life and in, in the end um, that's what the, the story ends up being about is a woman sort of grappling with that grappling with with the difficulties of Uh, the possibility of hopelessness, and the love that she has for her daughter and grandchild.
6: What was the writing experience like for you? That's a very intense combination of themes and ideas and experiences for you. So how did that feel to write it?
9: The writing process for me is... It just sort of comes, I have to say really the emotional part of it often really shuts off for me once I get my teeth into an idea and I want to write about it, um, I, for whatever reason, do have the ability to sort of shut off that emotional side. As I said, it was based out of real experience, both the loss of someone in this way that was important in our lives, as well as sort of grappling with, um, with that, with hopelessness. Just once I start writing, it it just flows and I sort of just write all the way through, especially with a short story, until it feels done and then I can go back and read it. Now, I do have the ability to sort of disconnect from the, from the emotional part of it. How did you choose the setting? Um, the setting is where I'm from. So the setting is in the Sandia Mountains, which are... On the eastern side of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and that's where I grew up. And so I've actually sat in those very mountains and grappled with big eternal ideas on rocks that are at the foot of that that very mountain. And then when I want to write about it, I start thinking about thinking a lot about that Sandia Mountain. So it's it formed my entire you know, childhood in the sense that it was always there. It was a presence that was always there uh, throughout my childhood and growing up. And then, of course, there's hiking trails because it's a mountain, so it's a place that if you grew up in Albuquerque, you probably went hiking in the foothills of the Sandias. Yeah, so I just was interested in it. And so then a lot of times then um, I'm also interested in the history of a place because we're not the only people who have ever lived there and had some kind of, sacred feeling or uh, some, you know, some feeling about that mountain. Other people have lived there in the past. And so then it comes to doing a little research about the people groups that that might have been important to in the past. And so a lot of times that'll just pop into my head. Whenever I'm writing about a place, that often is something that is very appealing to me or very interesting to me. Who were the people for whom this place was sacred in the past?
6: I don't want to give too much away about the story, but I think I can say that the, especially the opening really does set the tone and the connection of, like you said, the past with the present really strengthens and informs the story. Is that something that you like to do with all of your fiction or some of it, your your combination of the setting and the, the themes?
9: I would say that it frequently comes into into play um, with my writing. I... I have different places that I write for, I've written for um, a publication that does stories that are based on ethical questions or um, ethical dilemmas, and so then my brain is just what, it's clicking through what ethical dilemmas might make a great story. And so when I think about it, I don't think I can ever escape place. I, now that you're asking asking the question, I don't. I I think that that's always something um, important to me. And when I have spent a lot of my life traveling, and so I've I've done this drive between Albuquerque and Colorado many many times, for example, and it's all through those mountains. And I, inevitably, my mind is just drawn to to the history of a place. And so I think probably uh, now that you're asking the question and I'm really thinking about it, the answer to that question is that place and the history of a place probably does have a strong foothold in a lot of what I write.
6: What I'm wondering now is, it sounds like maybe most of the time you write stories and set them in places where you have been. Is that correct?
9: Yeah, most of the time. I wrote, I did have a short story published uh, last year that is set in sort of a dystopian future, and so I guess, you well. you haven't been there, I don't know, but um, it is, that's a place that I had never been, but still a place, a place has a, a strong sense in that story because what it feels like to be in the space is a huge part of what that character is experiencing. So even there, when it's a place I haven't been, place has an important place in the story. And um, I'm very careful about writing about places I haven't been because like any writer, I think you want an authenticity in what you're writing. And so if it's a place I haven't experienced, I do a lot of research before I try to even enter into writing about it. But I do, but, you know, places that I have been do are part of my stories frequently. Yes. And I have been lot, a lot of places. So that's nice. I, like I said, I've traveled a lot, lived a lot of places. So
6: have you ever thought about going to a place just so you can experience it and then write about it?
9: Yes, absolutely. I have, I have a a story that's been wriggling around in my mind and wanting to be written, and it would just so sadly take a trip to England to write about it. See if, I could, see if I could talk my husband into a, uh, a trip to England uh, so I can do some research.
6: Yeah, writer to writer, I think that's a totally a, a worthwhile endeavor and that you should yes. do, totally
9: do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And sense a place in this story that I'm thinking of. And I don't want to talk too much about it because it's got to, you know, it's got to, you know how it is. You got to live inside you and, and come to life inside you. It would be about a person who actually lived in the past, someone that I've just become absolutely intrigued with. I will say it's a mother, a mother of someone famous. And I'm super intrigued with stories about mothers. And the mother story is present in the one that, uh, in the story that you, you have picked up as well. So I'd love to go and be in the space she was in.
6: Let's talk a little bit about where you get your ideas for your stories.
9: Wow. Um, Well, sometimes it's a prompt, you know, sometimes it's a a particular publication that's looking for something in particular, so then that gets something going, running in my mind, and I write about it. Uh, One story I wrote recently was because I was having a disagreement with my mother, and a story started going on in my mind about how to prove myself right. So I created a fictional story about about that, um, and then sometimes it's reading um, a biography or a biographical work. They just they just pop into my head. Something just strikes me as interesting, and I think, oh, that would make a great story. That uh, would be, you know, that would be something interesting to write about. So it comes from really all over the place. I guess I don't have any one thing.
6: I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I know that you do some teaching about writing, and I'm wondering how does that fit in with your own writing? How do you inspire others while also still saving enough energy to inspire yourself? How do you balance that?
9: Yeah, that's a really great question. I think, first of all, I'm a teacher first, so I'm a teacher that writes, not a writer that teaches. and That's how I would definitely classify myself. While I love writing, it's not the way I make my living. And as much as I get satisfaction out of it, I really get a lot of satisfaction out of helping students to find their voices. I really love that process in various parts of my life and in various stages of my life. I've also been a theater director. And so this comes into play only in the sense that as a director, you're putting together this entire piece that's gonna go up on stage, but you're not the one that gets to gets the shine, right? It's all the actors. And so that process of helping them pull out what's inside of them, for them to put it out, I find it immensely satisfying. I just absolutely love that. And teaching writing is a similar thing. When you see someone their voice or figure out how to get over that like from just exposition and telling and then having a really great passage where they did a great job showing and they make that leap one stage of their writing to the next and it comes out really beautiful and you just I get to experience so many beautiful voices of all this wide variety of students I find it inspiring rather than draining I guess is my answer
6: well it sounds to me like you're really um honoring the creativity and the creative process and letting that be your guide which uh, I think is really freeing when if you um people that do earn a living with their writing I think Sometimes pay the price of the stress and the pressure of knowing that they need to continually produce something that generates money. But when you're teaching, and as you said, being a teacher first and a writer second, that that really frees you up a lot to go your take your own creative path and to lead other people's, you know, to their creative path.
9: Yeah, that's very true. There isn't a pressure to write. I write out of a love for writing and a desire to write rather than the necessity to write. You hear about that with all these old Victorian writers or these early women writers that I would be, be reading about, like the bean or some of these older writers where they were writing because they just had to make money. They had to have money. And so they were just trying to produce and I don't fall into that category. So I mean, I'd love to have a novel published. I don't have it yet. I mostly just have short story and, uh, and a little
6: poetry out in the world. But let's talk a little bit about the poetry. What kind of poems do you typically write? And what, what about how is the poetry different in the creative process for you?
9: Well, first of all, I've never been a big fan of poetry. I, I like novels, and I like short stories, so sometimes I read poetry, and I'm like, huh, that's interesting, and I just uh, I just don't like that, um, and it's weird, but I ran into a few poets that I like, um, I was fascinated with uh, Maya Angelou's poetry for a little bit in my younger days, um, as kind of a young single mom, I was a young single mom for a little bit, and so she had the um, oh the poem that's about the curve of her hips. Do you know what I mean? I think and so. It had it had to do with being intrigued because she was a woman. Is what the poem was about. And uh, and if I recall rightly, I'm definitely not my Maya Angelou like anything like that. I believe she had time also as a single mother. She was a single mother as well so i just was resonating with her at that time when i was younger i wrote a lot more poetry when you know when i was like 19 and 20 because it was of all of my 19 year old 20 year old angst and my desperate love you know for, for my boyfriend at the time and and all those kinds of things and I find at the stage of life I'm in now, it's I'm just much slower-paced person, and those highs and lows, you know, they kind of level out a little bit. And so I'm like, well, I don't have any more angst to write poetry from. So uh, it often, again, I, I've said previously that I am really drawn to writing about mothers and their relationships with their children. And that's the, the poem recently that I've had picked up was a poem about my time as a single mother. And I, my, the actual first version of it was written 20 years ago. I pulled it back out. I revamped it and I sent it in randomly to a art journal that was looking for an artwork and poems and stories and a variety of things about raised mothers that, that were connected with mothers who are always and I sent it in and it just resonated with her the publisher of that or the editor of that and so um, poem is about that time in my life when I was uh, a single mom so I guess I just can't get away from that theme.
6: You know what I'm thinking about when hearing that story is something that people that are listening might consider is that even though we have work as writers that have been has been you know maybe sitting around or hiding in a corner somewhere for several years, that it still has value and it's still something. It's it's never, you know, too old. It's never, you know, unrelevant. And that it's always a good idea to hang on to stuff and then when the mood strikes or the opportunity to get it back out in the world and see what can happen with it. I think that's Yeah, really
4: cool. you never know.
9: It was it was tucked away for a long time and amongst my things and I I can't even tell you what made me bring it out. And I didn't have a, I didn't have a laptop, or a computer to save it. I had like typed it out or written it out or something like that, and, um, and just saved it. Yeah, you never know what what work you're gonna pull back out, and it's gonna become something else, have a new life.
6: That's really cool. What kind of stuff are you working on now?
9: I actually am working on a screenplay. So, and that's based out of mother. It's based on a mother as well and uh it was about a, a mom who's haunted by the ghost of a child she didn't have. Mm. So it's a bit of a ghost story and I when I studied for my MFA, I focused on screenwriting, though I haven't done a lot of it. i put a few things in for contests and things. I had one thing made like the top 10% and then it made the first cut and then it didn't go any further. It's really hard to break into screenwriting, but Uh, There's a lot more independent um, and small companies doing filmmaking these days, people breaking away from Hollywood, so you never know. But in my head, this story is just, it's too visual to just remain as a short story. I've written it out once as a short story, and it's just crying out to me to translate it into a screenplay. So I'm going to do it. I've got the summer off. Um, kind of in transition between jobs. So, you know, and as a as a college professor, I, you know, we kind of have that summer That's great. Uh, so I'm working on that and maybe a couple of more short stories to try to submit to places. I, I haven't had a ton of stuff picked up yet. I wasn't really focused on submitting writing. I would just write a, a little bit. I, I was actually a stay-at-home mom for a long time. I homeschooled my children. They graduated, they finished their time in my home, and it was time for me to branch out and do something else. And then in the meantime, I had worked on my my master's degree in English and in creative writing both. I have both. And um, so now I'm branching out on this career as a college professor and I'd love to teach creative writing more and they often want you to be published. So right I that's what made me do it to be honest with you I just started submitting stuff well it sounds to me like you're off to a great start yeah I've had several things picked up I've only been I've only been submitting for publication for just about a year nice
6: if our listeners want to stay in tune with you and follow your future publications where can they find you
9: I'm not very active on social media, but I do have a little Facebook page under my author name under C.S. Griffel. Okay.
6: We'll be sure to include that in the show notes. Thanks. Thanks a lot for hanging out with us today.
9: Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it.
6: Thank you for listening to our talented poets and authors.
8: Until next time, this has been Washington Square On Air where we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's Literary Journal, The Washington Square Review, a publication featuring writers in the Great Lakes State, across the nation, and around the world. To find out more about The Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed sharing.
0: Featuring the staff faculty, students, and others that helped to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org.
4: LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Coming in October to the Black Box Theater, Lansing Community College presents Isaac's Eye, by Lucas Nath. This play tells the story of a young Isaac Newton exploring his dreams and longings, and what drove this rural farm boy to become one of the greatest thinkers in modern science. Performances October 6th through the 14th. For more information,
7: visit lcc.edu showinfo show info. Hi. I'm Lisa Alexander and I host a show called Who's That Star on LCC Connect. This show is all about an inside look at the LCC community where you get a chance to meet our faculty and staff, plus learn about their passion projects at work and at home. You can catch Who's That Star here on LCC Connect or listen anytime at lccconnect.org.
4: Michigan residents age 25 or older may qualify for Michigan ReConnect, a program providing free or reduced tuition to students who have not earned a prior college degree. ReConnect students are responsible for books and fees. Visit lcc.edu reconnect for more information. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.
7: It's time for another edition of Equity. Equity is a play on words spelled E-Q-U-I T-E-A. Why? Because I just love sharing a good cup of tea. Equity is designed to provide you with tips on issues surrounding diversity, equity and inclusion to enhance your everyday life. Today on Equity, we're going to look at policies and procedures for developing a diverse workforce. I'll say it again, policies and procedures for developing a diverse workforce. Here's three easy tips. First, begin to make sure that your hiring team is a diverse team. You can't get what you don't really model. Facilitating the hiring process is so very important when you have a diverse search team that is looking at job fairs, hiring constituencies, and community outreach programs to advertise the job posting. So make sure that you're facilitating the process with a diverse team. Tip number two. We understand the importance that it really pays when employees are paid. So make sure that your pay equity within your organization reflects the diverse jobs, roles, and models the trends that are in our society. Don't allow gender, race, or sexual orientation to put you off as a decision maker in the hiring process or diversifying your workforce. Make sure that you are going for cultural Add versus cultural fit. And lastly, when developing or creating policies for a diverse workforce, remember that different cultures and different Matters. Representation matters. Ensure that your employees that are currently a part of your team are also reflective of the team that you want to have at your organization. Celebrate holidays, celebrate cultural days, and make sure that your diverse workforce reflects the values of those that work in that environment. These are a couple of tips that I hope that you will use when you're thinking of putting your company policies or practices together for a more diverse workforce. Now go ahead and grab your favorite cup of tea and take a sip on all of these great tips. This has been another edition of Equa Tea. We'll see you next time.
0: This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ Studio, located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast-based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.